Hey there, Agile Wild Things, and welcome to another episode of Agile Bytes, the podcast sponsored by Integrity Inspired Solutions, where we build software in an agile manner, day in and day out. Have you heard of Conway's Law? I thought about whether or not this would be a good topic for the podcast. I'm still not incredibly convinced it is. It's kind of a niche thing. By the way, do you pronounce it niche or do you pronounce it niche? Let me know in the comments. But it's kind of a niche thing. But if you are in the agile space or software development space, you will probably run into Conway's Law at some point. And I don't want to spend a lot of time talking about the law itself, but rather the way it gets used. Basically, what I'm trying to do is arm you for the conversation that you're going to have when a consultant shows up and does a presentation that involves Conway's Law and then begins to advise you on what you need to do about it. So if you're not familiar with the law, buckle up. This is super exciting stuff. If you are already familiar with the law, especially if you're one of the consultants I'm about to talk about, maybe we'll get to some common ground here. Let's find out. So first of all, let's talk about Conway's Law. What is it? Well, in 1967, Melvin Conway, who was a programmer, wrote a paper called How Do Committees Invent? Basically, how does a group, how does an organization develop systems and develop software? And it's, it's a really good paper, especially for the time that it was written, even predating some other papers that have become very famous in Agile circles. But he made an observation that was later characterized as Conway's Law, and it reads like this. Any organization that designs a system, defined broadly, will produce a design whose structure is a copy of the organization's communication structure. Let me read that again. Any organization that designs a system, defined broadly, will produce a design whose structure is a copy of the organization's communication structure. Now, some people misread this law to say that they will produce a design that copies the organizational structure, but that's not what Conway wrote. He wrote that organizations will produce designs that mimic their communication structure. So the way communication and information flows in the organization, whatever patterns those are, those same patterns will emerge when that organization develops systems and software. And the idea here is that the reason this happens is because in order to design the system or design the software, those communication channels are what get utilized in an organization. So to do the design activity, you are using those communication patterns and that will influence then the design that you end up with. For example, let's say there is an organization that is very heavily siloed. Okay, you have these departments or skill sets or what have you, and the communication pattern is they communicate a lot within their own group, but hardly at all outside of the group, right? So they're very siloed. So according to Conway's law, the odds are pretty good that when this organization designs a system, it will also be very siloed, that you will have these discrete modules of functionality that as a self-contained unit are very functional, but communicate very little with the rest of the system. It's sort of like that that system silo is going to do it all and then on rare occasions might, might communicate outside of it. And the reason it's going to look that way is because silo one is going to work on the part of the system that silo one is concerned about. They're not really going to talk about the rest of the system and they're not going to collaborate with the other silos about how it should work very much either. So their silo will look 
in the system exactly how they want it to look may not have much relevance or similarity to any of the other silos, which will also be kind of self-contained units. So that's an example of Conway's law, the communication structure of the organization. Because you have to use it to build the system, the system design then takes on those same characteristics. So far, so good, right? I mean, it's an interesting thing. If you think about it, you can actually see how this could happen in a lot of different ways, right? Like an organization that has very ad hoc decentralized communication will probably have a lot of ad hoc decentralized systems that work together. Organizations that have a very rigid, monolithic, top-down communication structure probably going to design a system that operates and communicates in the exact same way. So it's an interesting observation, and it's an interesting thing to keep in mind as we think both about our organizational communication patterns and the software designs and system designs that are likely to come out of those communication patterns. The problem is when consultants like me get a hold of Conway's Law and then start giving advice based on Conway's Law. Because here's the thing, people learn about Conway's Law and their mind is blown. They think this is amazing. And maybe they've read the paper. They probably haven't read the paper to get the full context, but they take that principle that I just articulated about communication structures and uh, systems design. And then they begin to say, well, if this is true, right, if this law exists, then here's what you need to do. Do you want your software to have better architecture? Do you want your systems to be better designed? Well, then you should change your organization structure to mimic the kind of software structures that you want to produce. So if a lot of your software is very tightly coupled, for example, you should look at your organizational structure and make your organization very loosely coupled because then your designs will be loosely coupled as well. Or this is my personal favorite, what is known as the reverse Conway. Yes, that is a real thing. I did not make that term up. It is used unironically by people who recommend this. The reverse Conway is if we want to improve our organizational structure and the communication therein, we should architect our software better. And by architecting our software in better ways, then our organization in order to design and build that software will have to shift to accommodate the design to make that design possible. I even read an article not very long ago where a consultant was advocating having software architects design your org chart. The software architect should design your organization, which as a software architect myself, I find horrifying, actually. Many software architects struggle to do a decent job with software architecture. I can't imagine what would happen if they tried to design your organization, ideally for communication and work being done in your vertical. But this is the this is the problem, is that what these consultants are doing, aside from sometimes misunderstanding the law to begin with, making it about org structures as opposed to the communication patterns, is that they assume that since this is a law, if you change one side, then the other side will change, right? That this is like a mechanistic relationship. So change your organization communication patterns, your software will get better. You change your software, your organization communication patterns will get better. And so this is the recommendation. Focus on one of these things and then the magic of Conway's law will produce results on the other side. There are some serious problems with this way of thinking. Probably the most dramatically wrong thing about this way of thinking is that Conway's law is not actually a law. 
It's a sociological observation of something that is common. So we call it a law, but it is not a law like the laws of physics or the laws of mathematics, the law of gravity. It's not a built-in mechanistic truth of the universe that is always true and always works that way. It's not called a law because it's a universal. It's called a law because it's a common sociological phenomenon. Let me give you some other examples. Some of you have probably heard of Parkinson's law, right? And Parkinson's law is that work will expand to fill the time that's allotted for it. So if I give you a week to do something, you're probably going to take a week to get it done. If I give you two weeks to get it done, you're probably going to take two weeks to get it done. If I give you three days to get it done, you're probably going to take about three days to get it done. That's Parkinson's law. But is that a law? No, of course it isn't. It isn't a, a law in the strict sense of the word. It's just a general sociological observation. The more time you give someone to work on something, they're going to take all that time, right? They're not going to get it done in half the time just because they can. People will tend, generally speaking, to take that time. But it's not a law, right? It, it's not a mechanistic truth of the universe. If it were, just think of the crazy recommendations we could come up with based on Parkinson's law, right? If Parkinson's law were a law, then you could be like, all right, I'm giving everyone 24-hour deadlines on everything I give them. Man, we'll have that nuclear defense system built in 24 hours. Won't that be amazing? All we got to do, since this is a law, is just give work less time. And if we give it less time, the work will only fill that time. We'll get so much done harnessing Parkinson's law. That would be ridiculous, right? I mean, that's insane. Nobody would think that because Parkinson's law isn't a law. It's just a, it's just a general trend, right? It's just something we generally observe out in the world. And it can inform our decisions. You know, we might make our time boxes shorter rather than longer, maybe because of Parkinson's law. But we sure don't think there's a one-to-one -one relationship there, right? Or how about Murphy's law? Everything that can go wrong will go wrong, right? That's not a law. It's just a sociological observation. We know that when there's a lot of opportunity for things to fail, those opportunities often realize themselves. And so you have to be prepared for that. And that's why Murphy's Law is good, is it just makes us cognizant. As we think about a situation and we think about all the risks involved, we just got to deal with the fact that a lot of these risks will actually pan out. That's why they're risks. But it's not a law like the laws of physics. It's not that literally everything that can go wrong will go wrong. And can you imagine the crazy advice we would give out if Murphy's Law worked out that way? You know, let's never do anything that could possibly go wrong and then we should be fine, you know, or let's prepare for every possibility that might happen with this project because Murphy's Law is a law, right? If it can go wrong, it will go wrong. So Sharknadoes, we're going to have one because that's a thing that can happen. I saw a documentary on it. Now that I think about it, it might not have strictly been a documentary. But the point is, there was a movie, there was a tornado, it had sharks in it. So if that's a thing that can happen, then if Murphy's Law is true, you're going to have a sharknado tear through your office every time you try to develop software. But it's obviously not a law. It's just a general sociological observation that we keep in mind so that as we're making our decisions, we just know what kind of tendencies tend to happen, right? They aren't necessary behaviors and conditions. And Conway's law is exactly the same way. It's just a general observation about trends. It's not a law with mechanics that you can harness. Some of you know, if you've listened to the podcast or you know me in general or follow me on LinkedIn, that I teach Filipino martial arts at an MMA gym. And as part of this, we do a lot of stick fighting. So I hit people with sticks. 
And if I want to hit someone with more force, there's only really two things I can do. We all know the equation for force, right? In physics, right? You, you're, you got it right on the tip of your tongue, right? The, the equation for force in physics. It's mass times acceleration. That's it. So if I want to apply more force with my stick, then if I swing the stick faster, it will hit harder. Or if I get a bigger, heavier stick and swing it at the same speed, it will hit harder. Or I could do both, right? But if I increase mass or increase acceleration, the force will get greater. If I decrease either of those, the force will get smaller. That's the way physics works. That's the way a real law works, right? It's not a trend. It's not, hey, if you start swinging your stick faster, yeah, most of the time you're going to hit harder. No, every time you're going to hit harder. That's the way the laws of nature work. You increase the acceleration, you will increase the force. But these laws that we're talking about, like Parkinson's law and Conway's law, they're not that way. They're not mechanistic truths about the universe. They're just observations about trends that don't have to be that way. And just because you change one part of the equation doesn't mean the other side is going to change because there is not a necessary relationship. It's not a mathematical relationship. It's not a universal relationship. These things are just tend to be found together, but they're not of necessity connected, right? So just because I change my organizational communication patterns, that doesn't mean my software architectures are going to get better. In fact, it doesn't even mean they'll change at all. They could get worse even, you know, with the new pattern. Who knows, right? So you need to keep that in mind, that it's not a law. It just doesn't work that way. It was never meant to work that way to where you change one side and then the other side is going to come into compliance. It would if it were a law of physics, but it's not. It's just a trend. So if that's the case, then what value does it have? Well, it has value in the sense that once we're aware that this is a common thing that happens, if we are uncritical about it in organizations, now we can be mindful of it. Now we can be aware of it. And as we look at our organization, and as we look at our systems design, we can have this principle in mind that, hey, a lot of times our designs are going to be influenced by our own communication patterns and to a degree vice versa. So as we're looking at these designs, we need to keep that in mind and not just mindlessly let one of them spill into the other one. Let me give you an example. It's very common for employers to hire people that are similar to themselves. We could call this a law. Let's call it Ledgerwood's law. Ledgerwood's law is that employers tend to hire people who are like themselves. And of course, we see this empirically in a lot of places. If you look at the leadership boards of a lot of organizations, many times those people look a whole lot alike. Similar ages, similar genders, similar ethnicities, coming from similar backgrounds, maybe even similar parts of the country. And, and you know, you look at companies and you look at departments and things like that, and maybe it's common personality traits or something like that. But people tend to aggregate people who are like them. Now, if I were to treat this the way most people treat Conway's law and I were a, a consultant, then I would say, OK, well, based on Ledgerwood's law, then anytime you're getting a job or you're, you're applying for a job, you need to find out what that employer is like and act as much like them as you possibly can and look like them as much as you possibly can, sound like them as much as you possibly can, develop the same hobbies that they have, live in a bush outside of their house so you can see where they go and how they spend their time, have the same number of kids that they have so you can talk about that. Because if you are more like an employer, then they are more likely 
to hire you because of Ledgerwood's law. Does that sound like good advice? Well, let's go the other way. Let's say I'm an employer. So this is the reverse Ledgerwood. I'm an employer and I want to hire better people. Therefore, I should go on a journey of self-improvement because as I improve myself, then the quality of people that I hire will go up and up because of Ledgerwood's law. I will hire more people like myself. I am much more awesome this week than I was last week. So I will employ better and better and better people the more I improve myself. Is that guaranteed to happen? Is that the way it works? Is that life advice you should take to heart? I mean, I'm all about self-improvement for sure. And I'm all about learning about your prospective employers so that you have something to talk about. But I hope we can all agree that those two pieces of advice are actually pretty terrible for the most part in terms of having a productive employer-employee relationship. In fact, I think what most people would advise is be aware that this tendency happens so that you aren't enslaved by it, right? Be aware that this happens so you can be mindful in your hiring decisions. So if I'm a department head or, or a CEO or something like that, I can know, hey, generally speaking, people tend to hire people who are like them. It's not good for the company if everyone is like me. It's not good if everyone has the exact same background, the exact same way of looking at things, even the exact same way of talking or communicating or thinking or opinions or even worldviews, perhaps, depending on what we're talking about. It's just not good for an organization to only have one type of person doing the whole thing. So as an employer, I can be aware of this tendency and not be controlled by it. So when I have an applicant sitting across from me who perhaps doesn't look like me or had a very different background than I have, or maybe they talk very differently than I do, instead of me saying, oh, I don't know if we got a culture fit and then just reinforcing hiring people like me, I can think to myself, you know what? This person is not very much like me. I might not even be super comfortable right now. But you know what? It would be really valuable for my team to have someone who thinks this way, who talks this way, who has this background and bring that diversity into our discussions so that we'll be a healthier organization and we can come up with broader strategies and broader solutions to problems and more ways to communicate about them. That's how you would want to use that law, right? You wouldn't want to harness it. You wouldn't want to try to like base your decisions based on this law being a law. You would just be aware of it so that it wouldn't control you. So. That's why I think Conway's law is valuable, not for you to change your software architecture to improve your organization or change your organization to improve your software architecture. Guys, that just does not make any sense. That, that is just not wise. But what is wise is when you know that there is a trend, when you know that there's an informal sociological connection between those things, now you're not controlled by it. Now I can look at my organization and the communication patterns and I can say, let's make this organization the best structure it can be to have good flows of information, good flows of morale. And let's look at the software architectures and decide what the best architecture for that's going to be based on things like what does the software have to accomplish? How evolutionary does it need to be? How many people are going to be working on this? How long are we going to be working on this? And Instead of allowing these two factors to just blindly influence each other, now I'm aware of the influence. And if I'm aware of the influence, then I can circumvent the influence. The influence doesn't control me. And I can just make decisions about design on both sides of the fence based on what's best on their respective domains. I can do the best organization for the organization. 
the best software design for the software. So in conclusion, I just want to say Conway's law is valuable. It's good to know that the way your organization communicates is going to have an impact on your software design. Because once you know that, then you can watch out for it. You can be on the lookout for it and you can not be controlled by it. Thanks everyone for listening to Agile Bytes. Agile does sometimes bite, but we don't think it always has to. If you enjoyed what you heard today, don't forget to like and subscribe to this podcast on whatever platform you happen to be using. And if you can, leave us a comment because we'd love to hear your feedback. What things would you like to hear about? What things did you hear that were valuable to you today? You can also head over to integrityinspired.com to sign up to our email list. But that's all for today, folks. We'll see you next time.